What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. Welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique. We got a fucking special guest today. I was just hyping her up, but she's like, I didn't even know I was in that category. You're in that fucking category, Lauren. So her name is Lauren Conlin. If you don't know who the fuck she is, you're doing something wrong, I would say, if you're a fitness coach or a fitness enthusiast. But for those weirdos that don't know who they, who you are, Lauren, could you go ahead and please tell them who you are? Well, thank you guys first for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's a nice little ego boost in the morning. Just kidding. <laughs> no, but seriously, thank you guys. I really do appreciate it. And I love doing podcasts. So a little bit about me. I started uh, Team Local Fit eight years ago as kind of a small side project. Hey, I'll start coaching people. And then now we've evolved into a full team of myself and we have three other coaches. Um, we have a training director and a therapist as well on the team. So we've grown into a nice little family. Um, I do have my bachelor's and master's in exercise science um, from USF, well, Florida State and then USF. And when I was at USF, I was working under Dr. Bill Campbell and was able to put out a pretty cool study in my estimation, which actually just got published. So I'm very thrilled about that. I can provide the link to you guys if you want to put that in the show notes. Um, I am really pimping the paper hard because we got it in JISSN, which is open access. So it was really important for me for that to be able to happen because there's so many times when you want to read a study and then it's like $40 to access it for 24 hours. You're like, Oh, cool. So this is open access. Everybody can download and read it. Um, but basically we looked at how different types of dieting affect weight loss and weight regain. And that really shaped my coaching career from that point moving forward. Um, so I had a kind of a big turning point, I would say as a coach after that, um, I started competing in 2011. So I turned pro in 2014 then competed as a pro up until 2018. So kind of a lot of different things that I've done, but competitor athlete, mainly coach, um, and no comp competitor athlete. That's the same thing. Competitor athlete, scientist and coach. <laughs> are you still competing or you said 2018 was your last show then, or? Yeah. 2018 was my last show. I mean, I'm not like, you know, people are like I'm retired. I'm, I'm not retired. I just <laughs> not competing, you know? And, um, I started jujitsu about a year and a half ago and I really enjoy that. And it's just totally different. And right now I'm just not in the position to, to compete and that's okay. You know, I just, I don't necessarily want to do it. I don't have that drive to do it. Um, and I really want to be able to focus on the business and traveling and getting back, you know, last year was obviously a little bit different for everyone, but this year has been full bore back with like speaking and traveling and all that. So that's much more what I want to be putting my focus on. So what, yeah. what, uh, why jujitsu? Why not kickboxing? Why not martial arts or why not? Well, jujitsu is a martial art, but, uh, uh so excuse my ignorance on the why no, subtopics. No, you're good. Um, so basically, here's why. Uh, if anybody knows who Jocko Willink is, he's a badass if you don't know him, but I love their stuff and you know, longtime subscriber to Echelon Front and leadership and all the stuff they talk about. And you know, him and Echo, if it, you know, finish out every podcast, are always talking about jujitsu. I'm like, man, sounds sounds like something that is probably like this sounds pretty cool. And then two years ago, actually, in 2019, I did go to my first Echelon Front event, which is their leadership company. They have like a three-day leadership conference. And at the end of it, it's like, it's really awesome. And it's, you know, all this great like business information and practical stuff. And then it's like, we're doing an intro to jujitsu, which is like kind of just a random tack on, but not for them. If you follow their stuff, they all do it. So I was like, all right. And this guy, his name's Dean Lister. It's one of um, Jocko's training partners. He was, you know, very successful jujitsu athlete as well. Um, he was basically the guy who was like helping run it. And I was like, all right, this seems pretty cool. And we were learning stuff and obviously I had no idea. I've never done anything remotely close to grappling. Um, I am very, very unathletic. I know he was like, no, 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 I'm incredibly unathletic if you don't know me. So I'm um, just not coordinated at all, but I was like, this is cool. And uh, you know, our mutual friend, Steven, he had been doing jujitsu. And um, so I was like, all right, I'm going to be going out to San Diego, which is actually the gym that they all run over there. Um, Jocko and Dean and all them. So I was like, you know what, let me go check out a class there. If I like the class there, I'll maybe start where Steven goes, right? Okay. So I went, took the class and I was like, still confused, but this is cool. And then um, I thought, you know what, why don't I just try it? So I started it and um, I love our gym. We, I've made some of honestly my closest friends from there recently. Like it's just, it's such a unique group of people. Um, and I really started it because of the mental aspect. Um, 
one, as far as like Muay Thai and all that, like the kicking stuff, like that never really interested me to be super honest. Um, I don't want to get punched in the face. So that didn't interest me either. Um, and you don't really do wrestling as like an adult, like, you know, like you kind of do that like in high school and stuff, or if you're good, you do it in college. But um, so jujitsu is something that you can join really at any time. You don't have to have a lot of background experience. And so I was like, you know, let me just, let me just try it. And here we are. Yeah, I'm, I'm really I'm, bad. Like, I'm really not good <laughs> at all. Um, it's like, it's like impressive how bad I, <laughs> but it's still fun. I don't care. Um, and, you know, it is tough though with like traveling. Like it would be, I would be much better if I could go like every week, the same time. Like actually last year was great for my jujitsu because I wasn't traveling or going anywhere. So I was able to train all the time. Um, and I actually did a competition last year. Like everything was like great. And then after that, it was just like, whoop, my jujitsu kind of like <laughs> went downhill, <laughs> just getting back to everything, but that's life. And it's still fun. Um, I still enjoy it and it's, it's very hard. So I got back into it this week and I'm getting my ass handed to me. Uh, my one training partner was like, you haven't been here. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's been great. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that goes back to like, you know, don't ease into things. Like as a coach, you know that like if, if you, if you go like a year or two, not lifting, like not benching, and then you go back to benching your original weight, like you're going to be dead. Yeah. Um, and I just started plyometrics and I feel that on like a spiritual level. Like I was like, I'm so stupid. Like, why did I do what I used to do? Like not smart. That's smart. No, and, and it just is different though, because like, you know, you know how to push yourself, but at some point it's like, if you just like, a lot of it is the like mental aspect, which is why I wanted to join, but that's why it's so hard. Um, so for me, it's not just about like knowing the moves when you're rolling, you have to put everything together. And people always say like, it's like chess. Cause it really is. You're trying to think about like what somebody's doing, like, and I'm nowhere near that level. Like I'm, you know, everybody else is like the grandmaster and I'm just like, what's the king, you know, like, that's where I'm at. So part of the coming back to not remembering stuff is like the mental, like, and like that, the, um, not just the speed, but like the timing, like that's really off when you're not used to it. So like physically, yeah. Okay. Like I'm tired whatever, but it's like more like mentally, like, God, I got, that was, that was rough. Like, so, I didn't yeah. get any. <laughs> so, so you mentioned your paper, uh, I will put that in the text so people can view it, but let's go ahead and dive into it. What was the title of it and how, uh, what did you find? What was your intention of that? And I guess what led you to having that change your coaching career? Yeah. So I'll read the full title. It sounds very professional. <laughs> Flexible versus rigid dieting in resistance trained individuals seeking to optimize their physiques, a randomized control trial. Wow. Uh, so basically what we did was, yeah. We took two groups of people. We put one group on a meal plan and we put the other group on a flexible dieting IFYM plan. And it was, everything was randomized. Everything was controlled for fat mass, et cetera, et cetera, all these things. So they were, uh, the subjects were people who had been training for about a year, but I wouldn't say that they were, you know, like that was all that we had. Hey, you have to be within this age range and you have to be at least training for a year. Um, at this point in the lab, it was basically me and Danielle running the study um, in Campbell. There wasn't like a whole team how there is now. Like the lab is completely different, which is amazing to see how much it's grown, um, but it was literally us. So the length of the study was about 22 weeks. It was a very long study. Um, and we just didn't have like the manpower to like do all the training and everything like and have like the diet coaches like everybody does now. Um, so it was literally like us, hey, come in here. You know what I mean? So for diet, I mean, for training and um, cardio, we were just like, hey, please don't change anything write down kind of what you're doing so we can recall it um, but that was not controlled so that is one thing um, but the diet was either hey here are your macros and a, how to track macros ebook or here is a meal plan written by an rd and basically what i wanted to do was look at how these types of dieting um, modalities affected weight loss but also more importantly weight regain so have to understand the time period that this was in. I came up with the study design in 2014. We executed it in 2015. Um, this was what I, I always call like the heyday of IFYM, right? This is when everybody was like, if you use a meal plan, you're an idiot. Science says, no, like you're a bro, like all this, right? Like that's what was happening. Like Pop-Tarts and egg whites, like that was like it. So, you know, I thought, well, this, this is pretty interesting. Like, what does it matter? You know, whatever. And um, so, of course, I knew that we weren't going to be able to replicate the same thing as like a six, you know, line item meal plan for 20 weeks with a 
coach getting on stage. Like that's not what it was, but it was, let's see if there's a difference. And to be honest, there was one measure that was different in the post-diet period, which we could talk about, but virtually across all methods, there were no statistical differences. And we looked, we used two different types of body fat testing. So we did calipers and ultrasound. We measured their RMR. We measured their salivary leptin, which didn't show anything. Um, we also used a psychological questionnaire to assess how they were dealing with food. This was during, we did a, a baseline two times during the diet, two times during the post-diet. So a lot of, you know, data to look at. Um, the only measurement that we saw that was different in the post-diet group was fat-free mass increased in the flexible dieting group, statistically um, in a significant way. We've looked at everything. We ran the diet logs and we ran the training, we ran the cardio, we ran every possible thing. And honestly, we think that it would probably not be replicatable. Like we just think you know, it was just a finding that we saw. Um, so pretty much in my mind, there was no differences, which doesn't sound very interesting, but it actually is interesting, right? That's actually interesting that we could see this. And there were so many things now, of course, you look back, oh, I wish I would have done this. I wish I, you know, um, I wish we actually would have had, because I asked a lot of what I got out of this was the questions that I asked the participants, um, but I wasn't able to publish that because it wasn't anything that was like systematized. Um, but there was so much that we were already doing in that one hour period that it was like, I couldn't have even asked them one more thing, you know, right? But I was just asking questions as I'm, you know, doing their body fat and all that stuff. And so when you randomize a trial, the issue that you run into, or, or not an issue, it's not really an issue, but some people who were in the macro group, they had tracked macros before. That was easy. Some people were like, what is a carb? Like literally, they were like, huh? And as a study, you know, like we can't give them more help because the meal plan is pretty straightforward. So we can't give one one group coaching and not the other, right? So we kind of had to be like, we'll refer back to the ebook for the, you know, like, so that was kind of, that was one thing. And then on the alternatively, there was people who were put in the meal plan group who had tracked macros before and had tracked their food. And were like, I don't really want to be in this meal plan group. Likewise, there were people in that group who were like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. I finally know what foods to eat. I know what portions to have, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a vast like range within that. And what I really learned there was, because at that point I'm, you know, hard-headed 2015, 2016 learn like, oh, well, macros seem to be working. Like they seem to be superior. I don't know, like, you can track everything. You know, the very like evidence-based, you know, nomenclature that we use. And that is true. Tracking macros, I would say, is the most precise way to track your food. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. But is that relevant for everybody? Probably not. And that was a really big eye opener for me that, wow, I don't need to like pound this into everybody's heads. I need to have a different method as a coach on what is important. Um, so that was the main thing that I took away immediately from the study was, all right, not everybody needs to be tracking macros. There are other ways to do things and they can be just as beneficial. We just have to really, you know, tailor that to the actual client's needs. And then a few years later, so when I wrote this paper, we wrote it with, so I did all the deep dive into like the review of literature. I found what I thought was, oh, this is so great, which it's, it is great, but I misunderstood it. So it was two types of restraint, right? So there's flexible restraint and there's rigid restraint. And rigid restraint is, is very obvious, you know, black and white thinking, this is good, this is bad, et cetera, et cetera. So in my mind, oh, this is a meal plan. Flexible restraint of eating. It's moderation, it's balancing things, it's being able to plan, it's not as impulsive, all this stuff. Oh, that's flexible dieting. So I incorrectly, put those things in those categories. And I thought that for a very, very long time until I started to realize that clients were having the same exact issues with tracking macros that they would have had on a meal plan. Hmm, why is this? They're displaying rigid restraint, even though the method is more flexible, certainly more flexible than a meal plan, but not really. If you're like, oh my God, was that 208 grams of rice and not 205? I don't know. And we can all laugh about these things, but these are real things um, that people were struggling with. And I've had many, many clients who've had problems with being overly neurotic with tracking and have caused significant issues from it. So changing my perspective a few years ago um, from understanding that flexible dieting, IFYM, does not necessarily equal rigid, uh, flexible restraint. It could be flexible restraint or it could also be rigid restraint. And that was a lot of talking, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> I actually want to go into that now because I never thought of it that way as well. But I mean, you, you hear about it all the time. Like if I go out to eat, fuck, I can't do this because I don't know exactly what this is. Um, if I want to go to a party, well, I'm going to bring my food. I'm going to bring my scale. Like you just become that outlier. Yeah, it's now, the same what are, thing. yeah. So what are, I guess, tools that you're utilizing now as a coach? So something that I always say is like, 
fuck it, just have a meal, man. Like you're never going to get time back in your life. If you're going to do that, maybe hey, let's save a little bit of the quote unquote budget of your calories mm-hmm. to spend a little bit more. Or again, just go live a life. Next day, we'll get right back on train. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, now what are certain scenarios or um, tools that you give your clients now to, I guess, better cope with that? So what we, it, 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 of course, it's going to depend on the client, right? There's some people who are very, very rigid regardless of the method, right? Like they're just very rigid. They're very neurotic. They're very type A. Um, and they're really going to struggle. This is very common with the competitor um, or somebody who has had maybe disordered eating in the past or, or, or something, or they've had significant weight loss. So this is what works. They're clinging very tightly to it, right? Um, so for these clients, it's like, all right, first we're going to start with having an untracked dinner at home. Like we're going to eat dinner at home that you would normally make. Um, but why don't we just not track it? I don't want you to weigh it. I want you to just kind of eyeball what you would normally have. You're in your own environment with your own food, but we're just not having the food scale here. And let's try that. And let's see how that goes. Um, Cause I can say to some people like go, go out and have, go, go travel for the weekend. Like you're fine. Some people, okay, good. Like all of us would be like, cool. Some people would have a fucking meltdown, you know what I mean? And it would ruin their trip and they would either overeat or binge or undereat or per- like, you know, there, there could be a lot of things that happen. Or they'd bring their scale with them everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, let's let's try this in a more contained setting first, right? So if I start to notice these patterns with people, if I start to say, hey, just go out to dinner, you know, you have this event coming up, go out to dinner or you have a wedding or you have this and they're presenting some of these problems. Okay, let's start here. So starting at home is one very easy way. A second easy way is just, all right, we're going to go out and we're still going to order something and you can still kind of like mindfully adjust what you might be getting. Um, But again, no food scale, no set numbers. We're just going to have an idea of kind of what we're getting. Um, And then eventually people, once we kind of work through those things, people can add in untracked meals, no problem. I usually start with dinner just because if somebody has had a meal earlier and that kind of like throws them off for the rest of the day, that could just be really defeating and kind of becomes a whole cycle. So I typically like to start with dinner um, because even if they deem that they failed, which is not a correct term, but if they say that they have, they at least go to bed, they wake up, they can start the next day. It's not like they went out for breakfast and then now the whole day is ruined, right? (laughs) Um, So we start small and then we add in from there. And then hopefully the goal is to be able to say, um, you know, yeah, something came up and I had a date night or I had a wedding or I had a vacation or, oh, I had to go out to lunch with coworkers. Now there is a time and a place too to say no to those kinds of things as well. Right. Like there's, so there is also that because I have people who fall on the other end of the spectrum who are like, man, like I got to eat out like every day with my work. Okay. Well then we don't need to be saying yes to the high calorie meals every time we can, we need to make adjustments there. So that's also where like the flexible restraint has two parts. It is flexible, but it also has restraint. So it's, I would say for your first question, when people are really struggling with that, we just start in, Hey, we're going to work in an untracked meal and start at home. Then we're going to go out. We're going to keep it to dinner. And then eventually, hopefully we can have a whole day. And even now when we work with clients in this situation, um, like through these contexts, we can have these during diets too, like in deficits. Now I still have people have, I have a lot more actually untracked meals than I have even refeeds anymore for people. Um, just lifestyle, you know, people of course. Um, but even actually some prep clients are like, Hey, I know this is, you know, I'm probably going to eat this same meal like every week, but I want to go do this with my family. Okay. As long as we kind of have an idea of what it is and we're going to stick with it, we can have it. Um, so I've adjusted a lot of my methods there instead of just being like, hit your targets, because what I found what happening was, and I'm sure you guys have noticed this too, people just dissociate from the numbers. They dissociate from everything. They dissociate from what the portions are, what foods they should be eating, their fullness, all of this. And they just think, oh, here's these numbers. They put these numbers on this pedestal. And it's like, the point of the numbers is to have a better understanding of what you should be eating, not to completely dissociate yourself from it and just log in here as you're eating. That completely negates the purpose of this. That's funny that you say that. We had Dr. Joe on and he goes, yeah, I might have screwed this up, but now I'm trying to reel it back in. I'm like, hey, you still need to have these nutritional dense foods, especially when you're dieting because right, that satiety is going to hit you um, if you're just eating you know, egg whites and Pop-Tarts and not actually fueling for your performance. And now I kind of want to get your, your opinion on something else because, right, the intuitive eating crowd, right, that, yeah. that term is thrown out so much. And I think that's one of my biggest pet peeves of you can't just, quote, unquote, intuitively eat and just do what you want, right? You have to have this experience of tracking, understanding through a different lens of what flexible dieting actually is and, you know, managing your budget the correct way, I like to call it. Um, so how are you 
presenting intuitive eating with untracked meals. Cause I always yeah. say it's just education, right? You're just eating better. Um, you're probably going to eat the same thing. Just have it that psychological, you know, distress going away from having your phone in your hand and stuff like that. So what, how are you explaining that to your clients? Intuitive eating is a whole nother can of worms. Right. And that's actually, so it's funny, like two things I feel like I'm like working on so much is like, first it was like meal plans are bad. IFYM is great. And then that whole swing was like, just so crazy. Right. So now it's like, Hey, let's kind of come back to the middle here. But then the, the next swing was, well, diets don't work. We need to intuitively eat. And it's like, whoa, there's a lot of middle ground between those two statements, right? Eat whatever you want and diets don't work. There's a lot in between here. <laughs> so the thing with intuitive eating and what really irks me about uh, when people talk about intuitive eating as this thing that everybody should be able to implement, it really honestly hurts the people that it is trying to serve the most. If you are telling somebody who has struggled with their weight their whole life, often on yo-yo dieting, which is what most of this stems from, right? Often on yo-yo dieting, don't really have a good understanding, don't have good foundation. You tell that person to go eat whatever they want. Is that helping them? No, that's not helping them at all. That's literally giving them no framework, no guidance. Um, can we get there possibly? Yes. But to your point, um, it's all about education first. So typically when somebody's first starting out, like a prerequisite to be able to intuitively eat is to have a really deep understanding of food. And the problem that I have with it is the people who are yelling about this the loudest are people who have years and years of like food education and knowledge. And I'm like, you can't expect everybody to be able to intuitively eat like you, like that would be like me saying like intuitive eating is the best protocol. That's the only protocol. Now, um, everything else doesn't work. Okay. Well, I've literally been tracking my food since I was eight years old. So what do, what do what, I have two degrees, been doing this for 20 years. Like, what, like, where do we like draw the line? Like, that's so inappropriate when people are still like drinking liters of soda and like not understanding that maybe they shouldn't be doing that. Right. Like, like, how do you tell that person? Bitch, do whatever you want. So awful. So I think what we need to do is change the conversation instead of this just huge blanket statement, like always <laughs> is to say a little bit more nuanced, like intuitive eating is great. It can work, but there are layers here and education needs to be the bedrock and we need to have foundational habits first. That's what everything needs to come down to. So if the client is just starting and they really don't know what to do or where to go, that's what we start with. Hey, we're doing these foundational habits. We're not, we're not tracking macros. We're not intuitively, we're, not, we're tracking these habits and we're going to start here and we're going to build up this foundation. We're going to get a little bit more specific over time. And then eventually we're going to, if you want to, we can graduate to this more intuitive approach. Um, but the goal should always be to be able to go through all of those things, right? I can have clients go through periods of tracking macros very rigidly for certain goals. Then they're just tracking habits because of certain things that are going on. And other times they're just taking a full step back and saying, you know, I'm just going to rely on my internal cues and go here. And you can oscillate between all of those. That is the goal, but you can't get over here without all the other education to start. So that's some, that's some serious fire. My bad, Chris, but I got to say something because something that I always get asked is like, you track, I'm like, Hell no, I don't. The only reason I do track is if I need to make weight for my weight class. More than less of the time, it's like, I guess I'm intuitive eating, but I'm eating education. I was like, I eat damn near the same thing every single day. That's just because I like it. And that's just because I know that's, you know, I'm hitting my protein goal. I'm recovering well, it digests well, and I'm going. But understand, I started tracking after I was done playing basketball in college. So that's about, fuck, seven, eight years. So I had all of that experience to let has led me here. You to come to me, from saying, hey, I have no idea what you said a carb protein fat is and thinking like, you know, that food is bad, that food is good. Like you have to get out of your own head and you have to get into this, I guess, educational piece. So you have this understanding that right now we can get to that place eventually. But now that was that was some smoke right there. Go yeah, ahead. Chris, and it was the exact same situation for me. I was the exact opposite. I you you mentioned, Lauren, that you tracked since you were eight. I had never tracked, but I was also always playing sports since like the moment I could walk, I was lifting weights. I was doing push-ups. <laughs> Funny story. Actually, my dad wouldn't let me drink soda at dinner unless I did X amount of push-ups. And as I got older, those push-ups got higher. So I was just putting on tons of muscles. So it's like, I could, I could consume those higher calorie foods. No problem. It's like, we're going to get you jacked some way. I don't know how. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, you've been through this process. You've became an IFBB pro. What are some highs and lows? What are some experiences that you've did? How have you personally transitioned from maybe being extremely structured to maybe less structured or less structured to more structured, depending on how the process went for you? 
Yeah. So starting out when I said, you know, I was eight years old, like looking at my food. So I had an eating disorder growing up. I was very cognizant of what I was eating. And then obviously what I was not eating for a very long time and had a few other, you know, issues compounded there, but eventually recovered from that, got into, you know, sports and was very, very active, always training, always doing a million things. And then, you know, I fell into the very normal, like, oh, let me look at the, you know, magazine to see what people are eating. You know, not like, not like Cosmo, like it was like at least women in fitness, hers, whatever the hell it was called, you know, like at least it was like kind of like the meathead girl magazine. Right. And um, so I'm looking at that and I'm, you know, meet people at the gym and that kind of stuff. And I actually did my first show when I was 19. So I had known a few people at our gym and um, I had a very cool first gym, like culture experience. Like I did not, I mean, it, it'd be hard to even replicate it now. Like it was just such a group of like awesome people who like, it was four 30. We all met, we all lifted. We were all very different backgrounds, ages, sizes, everything. <laughs> like we all just trained hard as fuck. It was like the best summer ever. And I was like, oh, every gym's like this. This is awesome. And then I was like, oh no, this is not every gym. <laughs> it's like it was, it was the best. Um, but anyway, so I did my first show, you know, learned a lot there, obviously. And then I was actually started out at Florida State as a dietetics major. So I was just, you know, had obviously food education, food knowledge, but I was just like kind of measuring things out and weighing things and not macros. I didn't even know that existed because they don't teach you that at, you know, as a diet as a dietitian. Um, but I was just, you know, again, following kind of the bodybuilding stuff and then, um, I hired Lane as my first coach. And then it was like macros, what? you know, so what's this? And, um, so I was 21 at the time, started competing again. I took a little, I'd taken a break competing, peaking, peaking, like a few years in a row, eventually turned pro and then continued to compete, compete, like, you know, did the whole thing. And then what I ended up finding was by the end of, you know, my last prep, which again, is very common this, you know, at this point I've been competing for all these years back to back. Um, you know, I very much had what Cliff likes to call, which who was my last coach, um, Cliff Wilson. He's like, a lot of people have the off and on switch. They don't have that dimmer. And that's where bodybuilders really struggle to have like long-term careers is because they are so obviously black and white. And part of bodybuilding is you have to be pretty extreme, right? Like it, it is just an extreme sport. Um, but the people who do stick around the longest are people who are able to kind of manage those highs and lows a lot better. Um, so anyways, after my last show, I was like, you know, obviously I'd been super dialed in, like there, you know, I was just doing what I had to do. Um, but even within all of that, I had been traveling a lot for like the past few years up until that point. Um, and I've always made it work. I mean, I literally did a show in Italy in 2016 and was eating in Italy, like on peak week. So when people are like, I couldn't make it work. I'm like, you could have, you just didn't, you didn't want to, which is fine, but don't say you couldn't cause you could have, like, you know, I was, you know, chicken, please, like, you know, like you make it work and um, it wasn't perfect, but I made it. And so for me, like, I've always been very neurotic in certain ways, but like with stuff like that, I'm like, there's only so much that I can control here. Like, I'm just going to estimate that there's probably some oil on here. I'm going to stick with chicken and I'm going to have potatoes and We'll make it work right like that's just kind of how i've always been with food um and i always was eating out for preps because i had to travel a lot and i was doing things and again you just make it work you bring stuff you eat out you, you just you get it done you know it's not ideal but you you do it um so for me i already had a lot of that experience i wasn't just like here's my perfect meal that i prepped like obviously i wasn't going out of my way to eat out right but i would have to just based on what i was doing for the past you know those two years so now I would say now I don't, I mean, I don't track now, um, but I still try and say, okay, like how you said, um, Adam, like, I'm going to have about this much protein per meal. I'm going to eyeball this, um, trying to have these many fruits and veggies, um, you know, drink my water, like all like the kind of baseline habits that I talked about that we, we educate clients on. That's what I'm trying to do. And then for me, it's like, all right, I just have to moderate kind of the extras. And for the, me, the extras are like dessert and drinks. How much am I going to have that per week? That's what I'm moderating. You know what I mean? And if I want to tighten up, I'm going to have less. Or if I had more, maybe the week before, okay, maybe I'll have a little bit less this week. And I kind of just moderate it that way. So it's just a lot less extreme. <laughs> um, but I'm also not trying to achieve any kind of extreme goal right now. I'm kind of just maintaining. So there's that. But I would say that a big part of my learning art did happen when I was competing. Um, I just didn't realize it during the time because I was just in it and I was doing it. And then I had to reflect, OK, how did how did this really affect me? And that's something, too, that I think as a coach, you have to be able to say, all right, I need to be able to pull from my experiences so I can help my clients. 
but also recognize that you might not be going through the same struggles as them. Because for me, it's super easy for me to moderate. You could tell, honestly, I think it is so easy to eat out when you're dieting because it literally eliminates choices. There's no choice. You have the leanest protein you can get and you pretty much eat vegetables and that's probably what you're going to get. And if you get some carbs, maybe you have half the serving that they give you. Like it really is like the easiest thing to me. But for some people, they can't, it, it's really hard to wrap their mind around that flexibility and that like it might've been five grams, but not six and that kind of a thing. But that's where it's like, hey, we gotta, we have to learn to navigate those things. And that's how you're going to be successful long-term because if you could only be successful when everything is perfect, you're not going to have much long-term sustainability with any plan that you're on, no matter what your goals are. So with, you know, one of the things that we always try to do, and I think the common trend nowadays is, you know, fat loss, obviously now it being July um, and you, and I know Karina very well are very into, you know, taking in, you know, um, blood glucose, fasting blood glucose, or even just postprandial. Um, one, why do you do that? Um, and then how might, you know, just insulin sensitivity kind of impede or make weight loss, fat loss um, more difficult in general than it already is? Yeah. So basically insulin sensitivity is, you know, relating to how well your body is, you know, metabolizing glucose and how much insulin secreting, et cetera. So typically what happens is when people are eating high calorie, and I don't just say high carb, it is typically high calorie. So high carb and high fat um, for quite some time, maybe they've been sedentary or maybe they're just eating a lot more. Um, we kind of see that some people can lose this. Not everybody, some. Um, and some people just have, you know, genetically predisposed to do this. Some people don't handle carbohydrates as well as others. Um, some people don't handle carbs and fats together as well as others, right? So it really, really just depends. So when you're testing your fasting blood glucose or really postgranial, because I like that much better, uh, Fasting is tough because fasting is very, very influenced by sleep and stress. And a lot of people will have high morning readings, but when you look at other measurements, it's not, it's not as like off as you might think. So postprandial really is giving us a good indicator of and postprandial meaning post-meal. So about two to three hours post-meal, if you take your blood glucose level and you can see where it's at, if it's actually come down um, or if it's still super elevated, right? Like that's just one way that you can test feedback now. I would say that a more even accurate way is to look at your fasting insulin levels and also your HbA1c levels, which is kind of like a, like a three month marker. You do need to go get a blood draw for that. So as part of kind of just basic blood work that we recommend for people, um, that would certainly be on there, right? Just so you kind of have a checking in on where you're at. Um, but you can go get a blood glucose monitor at the pharmacy or you know the drugstore or whatever. You do have to go typically to the pharmacy to get the strips. Um, and it's really not that expensive. It's, it's like a little finger prick. And it's just something that if we're, if we, you know, people like data, right. It's a good thing for data. It's a good thing just to check in, especially like, so for Karina, for example, she's just somebody who doesn't tolerate carbs very well. So for her, it's just something that she likes to like, just check in on just to see kind of like where she's at. Um, just another data point. And for clients, when we start to see, maybe they're just like really kind of like, like they just start gaining weight with really no changes. Um, I think we've all kind of seen this, like somebody's gaining weight, no changes to their calories. They're like, I'm not really getting a pump. I kind of just feel like flat and like whatever all the time. Their body just might not be using that as well. And that's just, that can just happen when people have been pushing carbs for so long. And, you know, usually when they're pushing carbs, they're also pushing fats because they're just having higher calories in general. Um, so I've done it before where I have some people who do, um, you know, we'll do like a little reset. So it's just like a few weeks of like lower calorie, lower carb, um, higher fat, or um, what really, really helps actually is um, just more activity. So like, especially if you can have it post meal, so like the 10 minute walks, I know Stan Efforting kind of popularized these, but 10 minute walks after meals are like the jam. <laughs> There's a lot of benefits actually. So um, one thing with like habits like that, that i like to do is, okay, we, we want to think about, there's so many good things that you can do, right? Like there's so many positive habits, but like we only have so many hours in the day, right? So one thing that I like about walks is, all right, if you time them after meals, that's going to help with digestion and insulin sensitivity, two really great things. Also, if we're going for some short walks, we're likely getting in some activity, which you might've just been sedentary otherwise. So we might get about a thousand or 2000 steps. Cool. If you are doing it outside, you're able to, you know, kind of 
unplugged, detached, like just mentally get like a refresher. And then lastly, if you can time it up, again, there's a lot of things to time up, but if you can do it all together, um, like around when the sun is coming up and around when the sun is coming down, you're going to help set your circadian rhythm, which is going to help with your alertness and your sleep. So it's like, wow, what is this magic of this like 10 minute walk? It's like, well, there's a lot of other things. There's a lot of things that are involved here. Um, so I always like to have the, like, when when you're working with people there's so many great things that we can do right but it's like all right we have to make sure that it's it's reasonable you can't just say like here's a list of tasks for five hours that you need to do um so it's like all right can you do two 10 minute walks great can we time them around this time around meals and around morning and night great if you can do more it's awesome but for most people if we can at least do that we're going to be in a really, really good spot. So it's just another thing to check. And I would say that some people just have more of the genetic predisposition to not be able to tolerate um, high calories for a long time. And sometimes it's just also a calorie thing. It doesn't even matter with the carbs or the fats. Some people just can't tolerate food as much. Um, so there's also that to like look at as well. So for these 10 minute walks, it's something that I've heard uh, quite a few people mention. Like, I think it's getting a lot more popular and I believe there is benefits from it, like you're saying, what exactly, uh, what are some examples that you'll see within clients when you try to implement this as a new method? Like what, what is, where's the client currently at? And, uh, what are some changes that you see happening from this, whether maybe nothing changes for some, obviously everyone's different or maybe like gold hits. Yeah. So I would say that the one big thing is that if we can do this outside and we can time it up around, like I said, as the sun is rising around two hours after you wake up or up to two hours after you wake up. And then as the sun is coming down, you really are going to get like light exposure really affects our circadian rhythm. And most of us are used to being inside all the time. Um, or, you know, you're, you're seeing light, but it's like through a window or whatever. And that's just like not nearly enough. Um, so the, the light exposure at the right time, this is actually stuff that I learned from his name is Dr. Huberman. He's amazing. He's like this awesome neuroscientist. Like his shit is the best. Do so, you listen to his podcast? Cause Adam oh, is nonstop, yeah. like throwing stuff at me. Hey, I'm telling you that dude has literally biohacked my biology yeah. physiology when i wake up i have a fucking routine now that just makes me operate at tip top shower <laughs> everything i'm telling you it's just great it, but the thing that i like about him is that he makes he he explains it all um but there are really easy practical things you can take away from it right so one of the biggest things that i learned from him was uh, you know heat and light are going to regulate your circadian rhythm the most so if we can do something to where like so in the morning if i can take a you know a cooler to cold shower and i can get some light exposure awesome. You know what I mean? Like that's like going to be something that can really, really help me. Likewise, later in the day, if I can get that same walk kind of as the sun is coming down and I can take a warmer to hot shower, that's going to help with my sleep. So two really easy things to do with the walks in particular. Um, something else that he taught me, um, was, or, you know, taught everybody if he listens, but one thing that a lot of people really struggle with is being on the screen or their phone or whatever all day. Right. So you're so used to looking like narrowly. And um, I started to recognize this too, like, oh, my vision's finally going, you know what I mean? But it was like, it wasn't like always, it wasn't like an always thing. It was like, sometimes I would be like normal and other times everything would just be like, not in focus. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, this was very weird. And he, um, so basically what happens is when our, our eyes are like so locked in on stuff, we need to basically like look out. So one of the other things that I do um, is when I'm looking, I'm trying to look like far away to like expand my vision again. And that had like, kind of like resets everything, right? So getting outside, walking in the sun exposure, um, you're resetting your, you know, your vision and you're kind of just like in nature, unplugged, even if it's not nature, it's fucking outside, right? You know, like I live, we all, all live on a nature preserve, right? But like, at least you have something that you're um, doing. And one of the other big benefits that I see, especially with the walk, if we could time this up, is that digestion really, really does improve for people. And a lot of people have kind of like wonky digestion. So if I'm like, if you're like eating, you're all stressed out and then you're like sitting and you're eating, there's a meeting yeah, you might not digest food as well. You know what I mean? Or if I have clients who got really messed up guts, it's like, all right, we really need to make sure that we're actually doing this. So, um, I found big benefits with the digestion. Um, and there is some research on the insulin sensitivity, right? The, the insulin regulation and, you know, blood glucose regulation with the walks as well. So it's all minor stuff, but again, if you're doing that every day, it's going to help. Um, and even it's funny. So, um, one of my boyfriend's neighbors, like growing up, he's, um, he's like an older guy and he's not, you know, schooled at all, like, you know, like formally or anything. And, um, he, you know, he's a diabetic, but he like, nobody told him to like how he could regulate his insulin levels. They just said, take more you know, insulin. 
And he was like, it's so funny, right? Like he has no idea about all this stuff, but he like figured it out. He was like, yeah, well, if I eat and then I go and I do work outside, I have to, I can take less insulin because <laughs> he's like being active and it's like crazy. He's like, I lowered my insulin levels. And I was like, oh, that's cool. How'd you do it? Well, and he's like, oh, from, you know, going and working after I eat. And it's like, it's so funny how like sometimes like we don't even recognize like how simple that stuff is, but it's like literally like this old retired guy who like has no concept of nutrition or like health at all. It's like, if I eat my meal and then I go and I do some yard work or like work with a car or do something, then I can come back and I take less insulin. And it's so um, it's just funny how all that works. But so small little changes like that um, really, really add up. And, you know, I think it's important to get the most bang for your buck as well with habits. And because again, we always hear, oh, my morning routine. And it's like this fucking three hour thing. And you're like, listen, I don't, I don't, I can't do this. Right. Like I got, I got shit to do. You know, I got, I got, <laughs> I got people to talk to places to be appointments, you know, like I got realistically, like what, what can I do in 20 minutes? That's going to be helpful. Um, so I think that there is a few things that we can do walk light exposure, you know, what, if you like to meditate, if you want to read, if you want to do whatever, just even breath work, just sitting, I'm going to breathe for two minutes. Like those types of things can really help you immediately. And then obviously as clients need very specific things based on their own issues, um, you know, we can work through that. But I would say that those are some of the best habits and that that's applicable for everybody across like every, like everybody's going to feel better if they do that stuff. That's pretty drastic. Like it's literally like how he says it, it's literally no cost other than your time. And if you can't devote time to improve your self well-being, then you probably need to reevaluate your priorities because again, you're probably already doing something. You're just not optimizing it. And again, something is always better than nothing, as you were saying, Lauren, but if we're able to kind of optimize it. Shoot. You'd be surprised after, you know, a short amount of time, if you continuously do this and continuously win, shoot, it's, it's almost like you're not even really working really hard, but again, we're working smart and then we're just adding these things up. Um, but yeah, it's, I've learned so much from the Huberman podcast and I'm trying to get this motherfucker on it, but he's kind of resistant to it right now. You know, honestly, now that someone else has mentioned it besides this fool up here above me or below, I don't, he also just had a really great podcast on the Joe Rogan, um, Joe Rogan's podcast. See, I listen to Joe Rogan. So that again, it's, well, it's funny. So like I started listening to his stuff a long time ago. And then before he went on Rogan the first time, and I was like, maybe I should ask him to be on the podcast. And then he was like, I just got on Rogan. And I was like, nope, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and then, and then he you never know, though. Maybe it went on a slew of important people podcasts. And then he started his own. And I was like, that ship has sailed. But <laughs> in any case, um, yeah, he's awesome. And then the other thing, too, that clients really struggle with, um, and I'm sure you guys can relate to is so morning, morning routines can really help with like productivity and setting your day. But what happens at night really, really affects people's sleep. And I find that so many people struggle with sleep. Um, you know, whether it's just kind of like just general, like angst, anxiety or, or whatever, um, or something really is going on, but more usually what it is, is it's these few things that are off. So again, light exposure is really important. So if you have really, really bright lights, even from the overhead lights, of course, they're not as bright as it's a screen, but if you can dim the light, if you have like, we have basically either bright lights or we have like the, like our lamps and stuff that we have are like the, like the dimmer kind of lights. Right. Um, so like mood lighting, (laughs) but so we have those. So like at night we kind of dim that have like the blue blockers. I know they look all crazy, but they actually do help. Um, and then really trying to be off of like screens as much as possible. And listen, I get it. I'm fucking guilty too. I'm in bed fucking doing nothing. You know, like I look like job of the hut scrolling for no reason. You know, you're like, why am I doing this? Like, you know, you're just gonna, and we all find ourselves in that situation, but the nights that I do that, I feel way worse the next day. You know what I mean? And it's not just because I was scrolling aimlessly on Instagram. It's because my, my I'm stimulated and like my eyes are like looking at the light and like all of this. Um, so if you can do things like making sure your room is really dark, making it cool, trying to get the phone out of there, trying to be off the screens. I know so many people who, um, you know, I'm like, Hey, why are you struggling with sleep? They're like, oh, well, I go on a train after work and then, then I come home and then um, I might watch TV and fall asleep on the couch and then I'll get up and I'll be on my phone or I'll look at my computer after and I'm like, hey, um, that's why we don't feel too great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like this is not setting us up for, this would be like an example of like what I would not want to do. <laughs> so if you don't want to feel like this anymore, we can make a few easy adjustments. And 
again, I'm guilty of it. Like obviously running a business, like you're always just like, there's always something to do. Let me go check it. But the, the email that you're answering at 10 PM is not your best work. So it's better to just let it be. <laughs> um, if you are like, you know, just actually get that rest to actually be productive the next day. Um, and I'm, I know I'm using these hours. Like some people are night owls. I get it. Like they, they work better at night. Okay. If you can have a schedule that allows you to do that and you can actually sleep in, that's fine. Um, but I would say that for everybody, like most of the time we find ourselves up on that, not because we really need to be, but just because we're just distracted and we just get on it. And then it keeps us awake. How many times do you watch? You're like, I'm pretty tired. And then you're like, you watch a show that's like very gripping, or at least me, I'm like, I'm ready to go. I want to solve the mystery. I want to solve the problem. Like I can't sleep. My mind is reeling. I'm like, why, why, why am I so amped up? Like, I'm not even a part of this. This is fake, <laughs> but like, it's, it's just something that I know. Okay. If I want to get a good night's sleep, I can't watch like a psychological thriller or detective show before I go to bed. <laughs> it's just, not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, and I think like you said, you got to have to know yourself and that's that trial and error process um, and figuring out what kind of works for you. Like you said, some people are like literally genetically disposed to, you know, sleeping in late, working really late. Um, and if that works for you, if you're able to kind of design your lifestyle for it, that's really good. And I think it's really cool that nowadays a lot of companies are allowing their workers to be flexible with when they come in and when they leave and stuff like that. Cause that just shows you that, Hey, we're actually trying to interpret and apply this research rather than just yeah. doing it and say, Hey, here it is. Do what the hell you want with it. So um, you do mention though, right. Being up late is because right. We have a business and running a business can be really difficult at times because right. Um, you have these ups and downs and you can't get really high on those ups and you can't get really low on those lows. Um, but you, from, I guess your understanding you did hire Dr. Joe as your business mentor. Is that correct? Um, yes. Last year, I did have Joe as a business mentor. I've had many mentors over the years. I've been very blessed to um, have worked with so many awesome, awesome people, um, whether it's been informal or formally or what you know, whatever. But yes, I did go through Joe's program. Last, was it last? I'm like drawing a blank. I think it was last year. Yeah, so I know Chris is currently part of it. And yeah. I think that's, I've actually ran into a lot of people that actually go through his program. So yeah, I'm interesting. Yeah. What caused you to do that? And then what did you notice yourself changing about your business going through that mentorship? Yeah. So I, I, I'm trying to remember exactly what date it was, but we were basically, we were at an event together. We were staying at a show together um, for North Americans. I think it was 2019. Yeah. And, um, he had just started, he had just, he was telling me about this program and I was like, Oh, that's really cool. And I was like, when do you guys start? And he was like, next week. I was like, can I join? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I think we, you know, whatever they had like a few spots left. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll join. Like, that's like how it was. I was like, this sounds rad and you're starting it next week. So like, this is perfect. And I was kind of at this turning point of like, I knew, so for a long time, like it was just me in the business. Like it was just you know, just me. And then I got to the place where I was like, I can't do anymore. Um, what should I do? And that's when I started hiring, um, you know, coaches and have been able to grow, which has been awesome. Um, but I was kind of, again, at the sticking point of like, I feel like I can't really grow from here. Like I need to have more like business help. Um, so it really just opened my eyes to a lot of the like business minded thinking that I need to be doing. Um, and the one thing that I really, really got, if I could say like one thing that I got from there that was the most useful um, was really getting clear on who I wanted to help, how I wanted to do it. Um, and it's something that, I mean, to be super honest, like I didn't ever think about when I first started, like when I first started, it was just like, oh, it's 2013. Somebody wants me to coach them. Okay. Then their friend wants me to coach them. And then I went to the gym and people go, oh, you're a coach. Can you coach? Like, like, that's how it was. Like, I, I wasn't like, this is my, this is who I want to work with. This is my like mission for the world. Like, I was just kind of doing the thing, right? <laughs> like, this is how it was. And now as they're, as a byproduct of either the fact that there's a lot of coaches now, or there's just more people in general who know what this is, um, or just in general, the social media landscape and, and the, the world is all online. Everybody has so many options and there's so many people saying different things. And it's like, well, you have to know a lot of things, but you have to be pretty clear about how you want to help those people. Um, so that was one thing that really, really stood out to me. And I said, okay, I need to like dial this in. But then what I really struggled with was there's a lot of people who 
like niche down on like a particular group of people. And I love that. And I respect that. And I know a lot of really great coaches who do that. Like I only work with X person. I only work with competitors. I only work with moms or I only work with this, right? Whatever it is, athletes. And I was like, I don't, I have, I'm thinking in my client roster and our team's roster. And I'm like, we have clients on from all different, like so many different backgrounds, so many different goals. Like, and I want to keep that, you know what I mean? So instead of thinking about the niche, which I got so hung up on, like, I don't want, do I want to do this? Like going back and forth. No, I just have principles. Like we have principles that kind of guide us through all the different types of clients. And that's what strings everybody together. Um, so that was really the biggest thing. Like it took me that long to kind of get there. Um, and this year I'm actually a part of Arte Syndicate. I don't know if you guys know what that is. It's Andy Frisella and Ed Milet's group. Um, so it's, it's again, another kind of business mentorship. And they're both guys that have been in business for, you know, 20, 30 years and made, you know, they're very, very successful. And um, so again, just kind of opening my eyes to other things. And it's always about that. I think it's so important to, to have mentors and to have people that you can learn from who have been not necessarily like maybe they've been exactly where you want to be, or maybe they haven't been exactly there, but they've been through, you know, something similar. And I think that learning from that is so, so important. So I'm always trying to just, um, you know, not be too, like, I think people sometimes like, I'm going to go to every event, go to every, like, you don't want to do that. Cause then that gets really overwhelming. Um, but I do always want to be learning more from different people. Um, and I think it's so key to do that. And I've, I've really done that my whole life, whether it's through hiring like one-on-one -on -one coaches, whether that like for like my own goals and just kind of pulling from that, whether that's, um, kind of been like informal mentors, like, like Dr. Campbell has been one of the biggest mentors to me in general. And I don't, you know, obviously he had like the advisor role, but as far as like, a, it's like an actual mentorship, like, no, but he just has always been a mentor to me. Um, and then some like actual formal mentorships like Dr. Joe and, and now the next one that I'm in. And um, and then also just hiring people for consults. There's some people who I'm like, man, like you're really smart. Can I just like pick your brain? I'll pay you for like two hours of your time and just learn from you. You know, like there's, I do that too. So I think that it's just really important as a coach and an athlete for both groups um, in order to learn more. Um, and you can also, I think what's important too is to learn from people um, and to also learn how you want to do things and also how you would say, oh, I don't want to do it that. Like, I, I understand why they do that. I don't want to do it that way. Say it that way. Like that's a lot of times when I go, that's what I love about in-person events. Um, you get to kind of see how people, cause I, you know, I speak at in-person events. So I think, okay, well, how, how do I want to become a better speaker? Sometimes you're learning like, oh, that worked really well. That would work for me. Or, oh, that was really cool, but that wouldn't work for me. And then you're kind of like picking different pieces from people. Um, and you're just developing your own style from that. So I don't know if that really answered the question. That is the question. No, I think it did. It, <laughs> it, it's surrounding yourself. I think, I think it's important. I'll sort of summarize it. Uh, it's important to surround yourself, uh, by like-minded individuals or individuals who have done what you've done to give you a different perspective that maybe you're not seeing. Like, like you said, you never really established exactly like what you wanted. You do this, do that, do this. Um, but now you have a system in place, like you said, that's sort of core values. Uh, it's not like you work with competitors only, but you have these core values that you uh, take. And uh, I was wondering your input and what other suggestions you see yourself doing but it sounds like you touched on that topic as well. I think yeah, the, I, one of the I most just, things that you said too, Lauren, is right. You even sometimes, sorry for cutting you off, but you know what you would kind of do or what you operate, but just to kind of hear what another individual says, just like, oh, like that clip really good. I'm going to steal that from you. Because I, Will, Will Kongwenski, like he, an athletic approach for diet breaks, he said, hey, this is our halftime. This is how we're going to set you up for the fourth quarter. I'm like, bro, that, that is genius. And now I've kind of taken that and kind of transitioned to a lot of my male clients. And they're like, no, that makes sense. Like, all right, let's go ahead and do this diet break or let's go ahead and do this refeed. And it just clicks so much better. But I never thought of it that way. But never being afraid to, I guess, ask a certain question so you can kind of see how another individual frames it. That's that's a huge win. For sure. And that's, that's the other thing too, you know, going to I really encourage people to go to seminars and to go, you know, join webinars. I think seminars are best. Obviously, I understand monetarily, not everybody can do them, but um, if you can try to do at least one person, one in-person event a year, like it is, it has been such a change for me when I started doing those types of things, like whatever you want to learn, you know, if it's business, if it's leadership, if it's coaching, if it's science, like go to something in person, learn from people in person, talk to people in person. I think one of the biggest things, and this is what I've really started focusing a lot with you know, the, the way that we communicate and it, it happens to be what I end up talking about a lot at events 
um, is this how to teach other coaches how to communicate. And a lot of times people are so intelligent, they're so smart, they have such a great base knowledge, but they don't know how to, like their clients aren't getting results or they're not, they're not understanding how to communicate to their clients. And that is just as important, you know what I mean? So if you can go, and one of the, one of the things is, not just that you don't understand how to communicate, maybe you're not a good communicator, right? So you have to improve that. And the way that you improve that is by connecting with people and by talking to people and by refining that skill and seeing how people interact. And, you know, again, I, I always try to preface this. I am totally an extrovert. It's very easy for me. Um, but it's not always easy for me to go up to people who are like really successful and just like, you know, insert myself. And I'm not just like doing that, you know, but I think it's important to go out of your way, even if you are uncomfortable. And this is going to sound crazy, but I actually think that going to events by yourself is really beneficial because then you have nobody to lean on. You know, when you go to an event with your friend, you guys can like sit together, kind of like fuck off and you know, whatever, when you're there, like lone wolf, like you're like, all right, well, what am I going to do? And there's a lot of other people who are in your position. So it's not like you're the weird person, um, but it forces you to actually interact with people because otherwise you're just going to be sitting in the corner. Like this is cool. Like if you go by yourself, you don't have anybody else to, and I'm not saying every event you go by yourself, but you guys get what I'm saying. Go out of your way to really, really enhance your communication skills. And that will change everything um, for you. And I think people will just learn. And that's, you know, you can learn too through like books. I, I love reading just to, um, you know, reading and podcasts and just from different educators. Like, you know, we talked about Huberman, another person I love, uh, Jordan Peterson. Like I've learned so much from Jordan Peterson. It's just like lectures. Like he literally puts college lectures on YouTube. Like, okay, <laughs> like I wouldn't be able to go to his class, but now I can listen to this. And, you know, other just so many great people put out information. So it can get overwhelming, but I think that it's important in order to, to be a more well-rounded person to, to do those types of things. I think that's something that I really struggle with um, in undergrad. It was like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm all in. And now kind of looking back, I'm like, I really try to diversify myself of like, like you said, humorman or like reading a, a book that is totally off topic, but I want to kind of get into that because you can kind of bring that to the table with your clients and relate a little bit more. Um, Cause I think that relatability and being able to communicate um, is so underappreciated and undervalued. Um, and that's a, a huge missing piece. Even if it's, I mean, you see these, freaking YouTube sensation individuals that have no idea what they're talking about, but they're proud, they're loud, and they're just energetic. And man, they can sell fucking sand to the beach if they wanted to. Yeah. And that's what I've, I've told a lot of people. I, you know, a, a lot of people are in this weird spot where, um, you know, they have a lot of information. They're really, really skilled in that area, but they really struggle. They're like, how, how can I get started? How can I stand out against these types of people? And I'm like, listen, the reason that they're successful is because they are very confident. Whether the information is right or not, that's up for debate, but they are obviously very confident with what they're saying. So in order to, if you have the competence, you need to develop the confidence in order to then reach people. Um, and that takes time. You know, the, the thing about the people who are very loud, you know, like you said on YouTube or whatever, or anywhere, right? Oftentimes those people, fizzle out. So I always want people to recognize that too. If you are in this for the long haul, recognize that you're going to need to do strategies and like put in the work very, very slowly, etch, etch away. And then you can look up a few years later and be like, oh, cool. And I get caught up with that too. You know, it's like, oh, fuck, I, look at this person. They just, we all get caught up with that. You know, it's not like we're immune to it, but I think that it's important to recognize that if you want to be in this for a long, the long haul, you're not going to be like the flash in the pan, the super flashy, like just say all this crazy stuff. And, and oftentimes that might get you a little bit of notoriety at first. Um, I know that it's very tempting to be the person who um, is like going against whatever, or like being very loud against like somebody who's really popular or whatever, but you can do that in a better way. And I, um, I'll just leave it at that. I, I have the, the phrase, the loudest man in the room is usually the brokest or the, the loudest booze come from the cheap sheets. So, but I want to kind of get your, uh, uh, I guess, your thoughts on that process, right? Because a lot of us, right, we live in a time of days where it's like instant gratification, right? If I'm not, I just ate healthy for a whole day. Why the hell is the scale not down five pounds? Like what the hell is going on? This isn't working. Screw this. How are you relaying that message? Obviously it's by habits, but for that coach or not coach, that client that is still coming at you and at you is like coach this isn't working i'm doing everything that you say but nothing's happening how are you i guess calming that individual down and kind of looking at it from a, a long-haul perspective 
would say two things. First, initial expectations. I try to be very upfront with those. Um, this is actually something that I learned from Campbell. When I first met him, I'm like, God, this guy is like brutal, right? Like, you know, you know how Campbell talks. Like, it's like, if like when we, when we were doing my study, he's like, you got to recruit this many people because at least 50% of people are going to drop off and we're going to, and I'm like, oh my God, this is awful. And then I like later on, I was like, why are you like so intense about this stuff? He's like, I have to set the expectation, you know, because we don't, we really don't know. And we want to set the expectation here. And he just always wants to be like, like worst case scenario, here it is. Best case scenario, we don't have to worry about it, right? So it was, it was something interesting, but I really did take away from that because I like to lay everything out for people. Like if a client comes in and their questionnaire has all this stuff, understandably, I can't just be like, wow, your shit's fucked. Uh, we got like two years. They're gonna be like, uh, bye. Right. But I can also be like, hey, um, things are not looking too good <laughs> and they might be a few years in the process to get to your end goal. But in the meantime, here's what we can do. And here are the little checkpoints that we can hit. Here are the mini goals that we can do. And here's kind of what I'm thinking. So right up front, I'm saying that for people. And for many people, that turns them off and they're like, OK, bye. Like, that's that's it. Um, if somebody comes to me and they're like, hey, I want to do a show okay, um, we need about a year. What? You heard me. I said a year. Um, most people who are coming to me who have no experience with something need at least six months to build their food and their physique and probably at least six months to diet down. If we get there in a short amount of time, that is amazing. But chances are we're not. <laughs> so if you don't want to commit a year, then you shouldn't probably do the show, which is fine. But I'm just going to tell you that because if you say I want to prep in 12 weeks, I'm I'm not taking your money and I'm not I'm not putting myself or you in that situation. So a lot of it is just being upfront with people. Um, don't be doomsday, but also you know you have to be realistic. Here is the small goals that we're going to set, but here is that long term goal. So that's number one, and number two, um, you know, kind of sounds like the opposite of that. Like wait, what? You have to be strong in your stance, right? Um, but at some point, you do there are often concessions you have to make as a coach and you have to recognize when, when is somebody being unreasonable or are they just like, man, like I really need something to like change right now. And there's been plenty of times where I'm like, you know, would the most optimal thing to be to wait here or to not do this? Yeah. But are we going to get most of the result if we start now instead of four weeks or, you know, whatever, right? Like it's, it's within reason. Um, or if the client's like, oh my gosh, I really want to do this right now. But I'm like, damn, I was really hoping that we could have another few weeks of this. Hey, let's meet in the middle. We'll start in a few weeks or, or something along those lines, right? So I think that it's, it's about being strong up front, setting those expectations, um, standing firm in your beliefs as a coach, but also you know, making some concessions here and there um, when warranted. Of course, when, you know, when it's safe and, and, and relevant for the client, um, not that we're really doing anything that's like incredibly unsafe, but you know what I'm saying? Like it, it has to make sense, um, but you still sometimes have to be like, all right, you know, this would be the most optimal. And, and I lay that out. I say, hey, if we continue on this path, this is probably what would be most optimal. If we start now, here's what could happen. What do you want to do? It's up to them. It's, it's their choice, right? No, I like that. You're presenting like two options and you're like, Hey, here's what we, we could do. You choose. And I do that a lot is right. So you're telling me this, this, and this, and this, you got to hear yourself sometimes like talk out loud or re say that. Like, do you, do you actually hear yourself? And if you don't, then, okay, I'm going to kind of summarize what you just said to me. Now, since I said it, does that raise a red flag to you? And if it doesn't, okay, well, maybe I guess I always say, maybe I'm just not for you because I'm not an individual that will put somebody on poverty macros just because like, Hey, I have to lose this weight because like that rebound effect fuck is going to mess you up hard. And you're just going to be in a deep, dark place for a, quite some time. So almost sacrificing a big chunk of time, as you said, to kind of develop these foundational tools, because a lot of success can happen in that foundation that will now we can either do, Hey, maybe we still continuously climb up this or, okay, hey, now we're at least in a better situation that you have an understanding that we could start a fat loss phase and be a lot more successful rather than, Hey, no, fuck your, fuck your calories and just eat like a rabbit. Yeah. And it's so is, it's so rewarding when you see clients, you know, I'm thinking of somebody right now who we're coming up on a year together. Um, and she was somebody who had tried a bunch of different things and, you know, never really, you know, wasn't in a terrible place, but didn't really have a ton of great success. And, um, now we, you know, we laid the foundations and we've been doing a very like slow cut and she's lost like close to 20 pounds that she probably will be able to like actually keep off. You know what I mean? Like, this is not something that like, it was just like a flash of the pan, like it just dropped 20 pounds. Um, she's been able to like, you know, 
get new clothes, fit, you know, feel really, really comfortable, feel really confident. She eats out, you know, she's somebody who like for work has to eat out like multiple times a week, um, still in a deficit, you know what I mean? And it's like, we're making all of these things work. Um, and, but she came to it with a really deep understanding of like, all right, whatever I've been doing is not working. And we need to like, I'm going to buy into whatever habits that we're setting. And we worked really, really hard on those. And she's been seeing phenomenal results. And it's just really, really cool to see like what can happen in a year, you know, when you actually do that. And I get it. It's because it's instant gratification. We all want things fast, you know, even us, like I'm over here talking about, like we all do like, like you know, Oh, I didn't, I didn't have dessert one night. Like, so I should be like my down on the scale, right? Like you're, it's just so silly, but we all do it. So it's just, that's, that's where coaching is so useful. Having that accountability. If you find somebody who meshes with your like goals and like, like their style and all of that, and you know they know what they're doing if you can say hey here are my goals can you please hold me accountable that's really really powerful yeah and i i think you nailed a spot on uh with those closing topics like give the individual their autonomy to make the decision themselves uh you're you're gonna tell them like you're not gonna work with them if if it's just so unreasonable uh and they have the right to go find another coach that's willing to try it uh but i guess that goes back to like you can spend a lot of money on, on, on an amateur, like a lot, or you can spend like a decent amount once with a professional. And it might seem like a lot at first, but like it's going to save you money in the long run. But we, we love to close it out with some uh, self-education, three books, maybe not even educational wise, maybe just personal. Uh, if people, uh, I won't even give examples. What are, what are three books that you would recommend? just three. I read that. I was like, damn. So it's so hard to narrow it down because I, I love yeah. like books from all different areas, but um, we'll just start with a few. So digital minimalism, I think actually any Cal Newport book is good to go. Um, but digital minimalism, I think is probably really relevant for everybody listening. Um, it seems like hmm, that I can't just like go off the grid with my digital life, but it's, it's not really about that. It's about understanding um you know, kind of how this is affecting us and how you can adjust your life around it. Um, Cause I find a lot of people and even myself like can be so just like tethered to everything. Um, and it really can just kind of degrade, you know your mindset and your mental health and everything. So digital minimalism or really any Cal Newport book. Um, Dr. Campbell actually turned me on to his stuff and he's just amazing. So that um, extreme ownership, I mentioned them in the beginning, but Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, they're amazing. Um, they have a handful of books, but I would say start with that one. It's incredibly powerful. And it's actually a book that's actually awesome on audiobook, which is rare because most audiobooks are not good, but they have like the best, most epic reading voices. So if you're ever going to get an audiobook, that would be the one. You said extreme uh, ownership? Yes. Okay. Highly, highly recommended. Um, and then I'm like, oh, it's trying to figure out what would be the next one. Um, I, I gotta love, I love, I love JP. So, um, 12 Rules for Life is a great one. It's just a great starting place if you need like an awesome just kind of book. Um, Man's Search for Meaning, amazing book for like perspective, life. Um, Coddling of the American Mind, another really great book. Totally off what we've been talking about, but I think it's, a, it's an awesome book for anybody trying to understand kind of society. And then especially if you do have kids or you're going to have kids. I think it's a really great book. It's not a parenting book by any means, but I think it's just really useful. Um, so yeah, I'll just leave it at that. There's a lot of books. I got, I got so many, but. Um, <laughs> so go ahead, let our listeners know where people can find you. If they liked your style of talking, if they seem like you would be a good fit or uh, other materials that you are promoting right now. Uh, I know you have a lot of business endeavors that you're actually going to as well. Uh, yeah. Go ahead and let our followers know where they can find you. So everything can be found on teamlocofit.com. So on there, you can, you know, just check our website out, um, apply for coaching. There's um, our newsletter. There's articles that we write every week. And then we have a podcast. We put out two podcasts a week. It's called the Team LocoFit Roundtable. Um, so you can check that out. And my personal Instagram, which I've been terrible about, but it is at Lauren Conlin. And then the team one is just at Team LocoFit. And that was all the smoke on, I guess, a little of everything, personal, personal growth, like, sorry, uh, competing wise, business wise. Um, and honestly, I need to get into this Huberman podcast. And if you guys never heard this guy, listen, go to him, listen. And it's go just to his Instagram, man. He draws this stuff. Oh, I don't even, I didn't even do that. You didn't tell me this, Adam. This is no, oh, he's, why he's I haven't. 
I haven't been doing it, but and his voice, honestly, no homo. His voice is just great. Yeah, it's really <laughs> easy to listen to. Um, but that was all the smoke with Lauren Conlon. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate you taking uh, time out of your busy schedule, and hopefully, we provided some in- insight to you as well. Yes, thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. <laughs>